Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today, we're going to be looking at the accuracy of the Bible. Yeah, we're lucky enough to be joined by Trent Horn, a Catholic Answers apologist, to look at Scripture and see how true and how much of it actually happened. Should we treat this beautiful book, the Bible, as a history book? Let's find out. Good to be back with you guys for another episode, Trent. Welcome. Uh, Trent Horn is a Catholic apologist from Catholic Answers, and uh, we're going to be getting some Catholic answers today. <laughs> Talk about the Council of Trent. You know, we are really going to be counseled with Trent. He is a great educator and a great catechist, and I look forward to this episode. I think it's going to be very helpful. Yeah. You know, uh, Trent's one of those guys that when we're researching for the show, we know that we can go to him as a trusted source. Uh, saying accurate things, well-researched, well-thought-out um, responses. I mean, he really is a gifted apologist, so we're very lucky to have you on today, Trent, to talk about Scripture and understanding how it should be read and understanding the historicity of the Bible. Now, before we jump in, I think it would be really important to get the context of what the Catechism of the Catholic Church expresses about reading scripture. There are two senses, the literal sense and the spiritual sense. So let's just take a moment. And if you want to join me pulling out your catechism or pulling it down on one of your apps or online, this is reference 115, 115, the senses of scripture and the catechism of the Catholic church. According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the church. Again, the literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture and discovered by exegesis following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of sacred Scripture are based on the literal. The spiritual sense, thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks, can be signs. The allegorical sense, we can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus, the crossing of the Red Sea, for example, is a sign or a type of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism. The moral sense, the events reported in Scripture, ought to lead us to act justly. And in that sense, as St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction. And finally, the allegorical sense from the Greek anagogue, leading. We can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, something, you know, reflecting on literal and spiritual, uh, you know, I don't know how you guys have experienced this in conversation with others. And I'm, I'm sure, Trent, I mean, you're in that field in apologetics so much more than I am. But I have heard so many times people taking Genesis 
literally? Is that something that Catholics, you know, would do? And and should I read this literally? And that's sometimes a point where people diverge, you know, whether it's Genesis or Exodus, people diverge from the faith. It's like, you know, how can I how can I believe this? How 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 can I, you know, really base my faith on it literally? Do you ever get that in, in Catholic answers? Oh, sure. It's one of the most common uh, criticisms that I hear of scripture. <clears throat> people will say, how can I be a Catholic or how can I be a Christian? It seems like I have to check my brain at the door because <laughs> science tells me one thing about biology and the history of the earth and the history of the universe. And Genesis seems to tell me something completely different. So what should I do? And I'm glad that you brought up the literal and the spiritual senses of scripture. Uh, and also some people think that the literal sense is very easy to find. They'll say, well, well it's just obvious what the biblical author is talking about. But that's not necessarily the case. In 1943, Pope Pius XII wrote an encyclical, Divino Afflante Spiritu, on interpreting scripture. And he says in it, what is the literal sense of a passage is not always as obvious in the speeches and writings of the ancient authors of the East as it is in the works of our own time. I mean, think about when we try to read works even just a few hundred years ago. <clears throat> I'll give you an example from Shakespeare. So there's a famous line in Romeo and Juliet, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? You know, what, what does that mean? A lot of people think Juliet is just asking Romeo, where are you? But that's, she, he's right there. They're having a conversation that doesn't make, they think she's on a balcony asking where he is, but that's not what wherefore means in Shakespearean English. It actually means why. She's actually asking him, why are you Romeo? In the sense that, mm. you know, why, why is one of us a Capulet? Why is one of us a Montague? And she then tells him, forsake thy name. So she's making a point about how their families are at war with each other. But if you didn't understand the linguistic convention of that time, which was just a few hundred years ago, you would miss that. And this, a similar thing can happen in scripture, and we're talking about something written thousands of years ago in a completely different language, uh, different culture. And so that's why Pope Pius XII tells us uh, that we have to, uh, he says here, you have to go back as the interpreter, as it were, needs to go back wholly in spirit to those remote centuries of the East through history, archaeology, ethnology, and other sciences. And that comes up when we're, when we're talking about Genesis. Now, Trent, that approach would be kind of like the, the historical critical method, correct? That's like looking at the context of the time to understand the meaning. And one of my favorite things about scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, is how many puns there are, right? There was a lot of humor in the way that the, the um, scripture writers would write. But those are completely lost on us. They would be like, you know, calling uh, the, um, the Canaanite god Baal, right? It was really saying, you know, you're the Lord of the flies. You're the Lord of the things that fly around done, right? But you can't really get that sense because you don't speak the language. You don't get the inside reference. There's a lot of things like that, that if you really get into right. the historical critical method, it uncovers so much more of that literal sense that you're both talking about. Um, so could you speak to maybe how a Catholic or a Christian or, or a non-believer, because we have a lot of atheists who watch our show. Hey, guys, figure it out or, you know bad things might happen. But how can they go about reading particularly maybe the Torah and the early books of the Bible where there seems to be so many fantastical, ahistorical things of pillars of fire and talking snakes? How can we find the literal sense 
in those types of passages. Well, I think what's important is that we read scripture through the eyes of the church. And so that's why Christ gave us a magisterium. You go back to Acts chapter eight, for example, when the evangelist Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah and Philip asks him, you know, he's reading from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And he asks him, well, do you know what you're reading about? And the, the, the eunuch says, well, how can I, unless someone shows me? And so then Philip evangelizes him and tells him how the old Testament prophesied the Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of Israel for all people. And, and he made the scriptures come alive for the eunuch and then baptized him. And so the church does that for us as well. So that's why it's important when we're reading scripture, not just think, oh, I can figure this out all by myself. Well, no, we have, the church gives us interpretive guidelines, ways of understanding. Now, uh, that being said, it's important to note that the magisterium gives biblical scholars wide latitude in interpreting and understanding scripture. What the church does is not so much tells us what the Bible means, but it tells us what it can't mean. So it can't mean, if you interpret a passage that says Jesus is not fully divine, then you're just wrong in your interpretation. It can't mean that because the church tells us Jesus is fully divine. Uh, if it, you know, and then there's other examples, obviously, that will, will come up. Other dogmas, the perpetual virginity of Mary, Christ's real presence in the Eucharist. It gives us guardrails as we're interpreting. Uh, but then as we continue on, there's other open questions, especially when we go back in the Old Testament about ancient history and genre. Another point that would be raised is to say, all right, when someone says, well, can we trust the Bible? That's like asking, can we trust a library? Because that's what the Bible is. The Bible is not a single book. It comes from the Greek word biblos, means the books, the collection of scrolls. So there are going to be some stories in scripture that are fictional. The, the story of the prodigal son probably never happened, but that doesn't change the fact that the story, the, the meaning and the theme of the story for Jesus's audience and the, and the genre he was telling, which was a parable. Pope St. John Paul II has said that stories like Job or Jonah uh, or Judith uh, from the Old Testament may be examples of didactic fiction. So they are fictional stories that, meant, that are meant to tell us, uh, communicate an important truth. So then when we go back to Genesis, keeping that in mind, um, the genre that I would describe Genesis chapters 1 through 11, a term that I like is epic poetry. I know Pope St. John Paul II, I believe, said myth in the truest sense. But for a lot of people, myth is it's fake. You know, it's, it's, it never happened. But I like epic poetry uh, because it can be true, but you don't, you don't read it like a transcript. Uh, so, for example, take the poem, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. You know, this, he's like, the, the Redcoats are coming, the British are coming, the British are coming. And he's, he's riding through the New England towns to talk about the, the impending American Revolution. It probably didn't happen that way. When Paul Revere is writing and he's saying, well, the, Red the British are coming, most of the colonists would be like, oh, I am British. <laughs> they, they wouldn't know that because they saw themselves as British. It's and and he's supposed to be secretly telling this message when he's blaring out in the middle of the night to people. So these are exaggerated details of the story, but the events still happened, just not in the epic details that have been added to help us understand the story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a way for us to be able to look at Genesis to show there is no contradiction between what the text asserts 
and also what we read in modern science. And to remember, Genesis is not a scientific text. The Bible is not a, a textbook, either scientific or theological. It is a, a recounting of God's dealings with human beings through salvation history. And throughout it, God comes down to our level. So I'll give one more example. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on all of this. When my five-year-old asks me, Dad, where do babies come from? Uh, I'm not going to dodge the question. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to be like, oh, the stork or the cabbage patch. But I'm also not going to tell him things that are beyond his level of understanding or maturity. So I'll tell him, well, da the daddy gives the mommy a seed, and the seed grows in the mommy's belly. Uh, and that seed is a, is a baby, and the baby grows. And when the baby can live outside of the mommy, then the baby is born. Now, my question, now my question for you is, is that description true? Well, if I was to write that on my human anatomy and physiology exam in college, I would fail. <laughs> but it's certainly true enough for a five-year-old to understand. It gets the basic elements right. It's just, not in a, it's just not in a scientific approximation. That's, I think, can help us guide, especially when we read these early chapters of Scripture. I love the fact that, you know, pointing out Jesus and the use of parables, you know, Jesus right there, right in our, right in our faces is using the spiritual sense. So he's evoking within us a, a sense of, you know, spiritual transmission of the reception of truth, that there's a, that there's a, a sense of this should, this should convict me and instruct me and, and receiving that instruction, it could be myth it could be story, it could be parable, but isn't it true that like, that's how you deliver a fantastic instruction that's memorable. And, and I think, you know, the, the memorable realities of Genesis, of Exodus, of how, how easy is it to memorize these things? I mean, you could just basically like sprinkle a reference and then jump off of it to be able to make a point you know, in my, in my line of work in, in homiletically, you know, to be right. able to drive a homily just by sprinkling that little contact with the memory of some type of Genesis or Exodus account, and then drawing that into Christ. And, and it really goes to your point very, for me, very well. Right. And so I would also add, so let's look at some of the guidance the church gives us in paragraph 390 of the catechism. It says, for example, the account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language, mm. but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. So the fall of man is a historical event. This is not something that's purely myth or allegorical, but the exact details of the fall when we're reading in Genesis 3, we shouldn't imagine that Genesis 3 is like a transcript or it's like we had a camcorder there recording everything. Uh, I, I love when, you know, a lot of times when we have our recollections of scripture, we're not actually recalling scripture, we're recalling uh, popular depictions of it. People will say, I'll ask them, well, what fruit did Eve eat in the garden? They'll say, oh, it was an apple. You know, because we, we look in our children's Bibles and Sunday school murals and it's an apple. Uh, no, you wouldn't have apples growing in the red, juicy apples growing in the Middle East. If anything, if it was a fruit as part of the story, I, I would go with a date probably. Uh, but Pope St. John Paul II in uh, some of his, his writings on this has talked about how the, the, the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the taking of the fruit may symbolically represent man transgressing his limit of authority and taking God's place as his own place in determining his role of understanding of the universe and saying, you know what, God, 
I've got this figured out. You created everything. Thanks. I'll, I'll take it from here. And that that was the, the original sin that human beings committed. One of the things you mentioned, Trent, was um, the authority of the Catholic Church as a, a, a benefit for somebody reading scripture. And I think that's very important, too, as well, because you'll see a lot of different, um, you know, uh, interpretations of scripture and parts of scripture. And I think it's uh, for me, it's always been important growing up in the South that um, when I shared this is that there is a you know, there was a, a massive tradition before the Bible was even put together after um, Christianity was made legal. And the intent of the bishops and the and the folks that came together in this council to create what is what we know of scripture, um, th- there was some underlying intentions that were that were shared. And I think a lot of them were the direct relationship that the apostles or the writers had with Jesus. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how that authority is uh, transparent and how we, we look at scripture too as well? Right. So when we go back to the catechism, it talks about the multi-stage process that's involved in the communication of divine revelation, especially in the period of the new covenant. And so what it talks about is how what begins is, is you have uh, Jesus's earthly ministry where he teaches and equips his disciples dies and then after his resurrection uh confirms them in their mission and you know gives them the great commission that's described in matthew 28 Mm -hmm. then from there what we have is not scripture the first uh piece of inspired scripture would not be written for at least two decades Um, scholars generally think that uh paul's letters to the first letter thessalonians probably one of the earliest writings we have in the new testament uh but the this early this writing of inspired scripture comes later for the first 20 years of the church's history god's word exists solely in the the proclamation of the sacred tradition of the word of god in an unwritten form you go to first thessalonians 2 15 uh saint paul uh tells us sorry second thessalonians 2 15 he tells them uh what you have received from me uh by you know stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you have received, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Uh, and so it's interesting, actually, when you read uh, in some Protestant translations of the Bible, the Greek word for tradition is paradosis. It means that which is handed on. Uh, so think of like how a baton is handed on in a relay mm-hmm. race. That's paradosis, the, that, that which is handed on. Uh, well, tradition, Latin tradere, Greek paradosis. In some Protestant translations of the Bible, that Greek word paradosis, when it is talked about in a negative sense, like in Mark chapter seven, when Jesus condemns the traditions of men, when he condemns the traditions of the Pharisees that are elevated above and in contradiction to scripture, the paradosis is translated tradition. But in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, when it says, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions, it's rendered teaching instead of tradition, as if to try to say that tradition is just some kind of uh, always a bad thing. Well, scripture itself is a kind of, is part of sacred tradition. You can look at it. It's that which is handed on. Uh, So there's different ways of cashing out what is meant by sacred tradition and sacred scripture. But one way is to say that we have sacred scripture, the writings that the church has authoritatively declared 
uh, in the fourth century, uh, the regional councils, and then solemnly at an ecumenical council in the 16th century to say this is the written word of God. Uh, but then we have this unwritten uh, tradition that guides the church in its readings of scripture. And even Protestants have unwritten traditions yeah. that are sacred to them, namely things like the canon of scripture or the fact that divine revelation ended with the death of the last apostle or last apostolic man. The Bible never says, okay, Re Revelation's done now. It doesn't say that, but we go to the catechism in paragraph 65 and 66 that talks about how public revelation has ended. Private revelation can continue, but the revelation that obliges everyone to assent to, that ended 2000 years ago, yet it's not described in scripture. We receive that as a sacred tradition. You know, one of the things, and you mentioned this earlier, is that the Bible is a collection. It's, it is a library, right? So imagine if you were to go and log into your Netflix account and you were to watch a couple fictional movies, then watch a historical bio, a documentary on World War I. And then if you took the same approach that people take to the Bible, you say, well, World War I didn't happen because I just watched whatever fictional movie. Because right. they're comparing unlike things in a collection. So in that way, scripture is much, very much like, um, like your Netflix account. Now, that's not to say that none of it's true. I mean, I, I particularly believe there was a true historical Adam and Eve. But is Genesis 1 through 11 exactly how it happened? Likely not. Now, the second point I'd also make is that well, I will let me I, don't yeah, lose your don't lose yeah, your please. thought because some people may find that a, a glib dismissal. Well, how do you know that? This is actually something that was debated centuries ago, long before Darwin and the theory of evolution. When Augustine was engaging the Man the Manichaean heretics, mm -hmm. they told him, you know, the God of the Old Testament's the bad God that made the material world. He's an idiot, and you can you can't trust the Old Testament because look, it says the light was made on day one, but the sun was made on day four. The sun is what makes the light. What's going on here? And Augustine said, well, the sacred writer is stretching out in time what happened in a single instant. He's not writing in a chronological order. Uh, he's giving something more, and that was his understanding, he was giving something more symbolic. And so one way of looking at the first week of Genesis is that days one through three symbolize how God made the realms of creation and four, four through six, he populates them with fish, birds, reptiles, and then human beings and then rests at day seven in kind of a cosmic temple allegory. But so, you know, the idea here is I'd say, well, there's actually clues within the text itself that tell us this may not be a literal chronological description of events that sometimes we miss if we're not looking for them. That's right. But I didn't mean to throw you off. No, 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 no. And, and I think that was the point I was trying to make and you did it much better. And that's why you are an apologist with Catholic answers and I'm not, I just have to hang out with these two. <laughs> um, the other point is, and you mentioned the Old Testament, and I think the Old Testament is probably the hardest one for people to believe. The New Testament is, you know, the veracity of it, the, the figures. I mean, we have inscriptions of Pontius Pilate. We know Augustus. There's proof, right, in a much more acceptable sense to most non-believers. But if you look at the Old Testament, there's all of these historical recountings and all of these names and places and the Amalekites and the, and the you know, Medianites and, you know, the Assyrians and this and that. And a lot of it seemingly doesn't line up with the archaeological record. But I would say that people need to understand, if you took a thousand years from now and you looked at the history of World War II, where the major players were the Soviet Union, 
the United States and England and France and, and Germany and Japan, right? These are all major world powers. But say in a thousand years, for some reason, the recountings of the, the Belarusians were the ones that everyone read. And the Belarusians part of the world of history seems so much bigger. Now, back then you would have, you know, the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Persians or the Romans or the Greeks. And then you had little old Judea, right? Which is a satrap. It's a vassal state. It was always constantly changing hands. Right. But they're looking at world history through the view of this tiny nation where in their view, the world revolves around them because they're God's chosen people, which is true, right? But when you look at the historical record, the Egyptians weren't saying, well, what's going on with, you know, King Hezekiah over there? Because they didn't care because it was just a little regional king. The historical right. record focused on the major empires, the major players of history, which Judea and Israel just were not. So that gives people a misguided sense of the actual historicity when they're saying things like, you know, the Babylonian captivity and Belshazzar and all this. Uh, could you speak a little bit to how the role of Israel in geopolitical framework of the time leads people to misunderstand the actual historical and archaeological record? Right. And, and this is something that Pope Leo XIII uh, dealt with. He talked about this in his encyclical uh, Providentissimus Deus, uh, it was written in 1893, also on the interpretation of scripture, which was a big deal at the time. Uh, it's interesting, Pope Pius XII wrote an encyclical on that in the 1940s when you have the synthesis, that was during the, the synthesis of the modern theory of evolution, calling into question elements of Genesis and things like that. Uh, in the 1890s, you not only have Darwin, Darwinian evolution, but you have the rise of German form criticism. Uh, so you have uh, at this in this time period uh, things like the multi-source hypothesis for the the Torah, what uh, the the Wellhausen hypothesis, the idea that Moses didn't write uh, the books of the, the Torah, that rather it was written by four sources: uh, the the Yahweh source, the Eloist, uh, two different theological schools in ancient uh, Judaism the priestly account and the Deuteronomist account later, and they were um, edited together. And that's a very common view in biblical studies and one that the church allows people to hold. Though there are others who have argued against this view. Uh, Isaac Kikawada and uh, Quinn, his co-author, wrote a book called Before Abraham Was, this is back in 1985, that then they point out themes that are unified throughout Genesis 1 through 11, that actually speak of a, of a single author or single editorial influence or possibly a single original author. Mm -hmm. But the, going back to your original question, yes, uh, you, you shouldn't think of Israel as just being a power player amongst other people with a modern 24-hour news cycle recording everything. That you're right, unlike the New Testament, when you go back further in the Old Testament, thousands of years, it's more difficult to uh, collect uh, ancient uh, documents, biblical or non-biblical, uh, to corroborate events, but uh, we the the skeptic sometimes takes this argument from silence and always runs it against scripture. So Pope Leo the Thirteenth and Providentissimus Deus said that secular writings are always given the benefit of the doubt, and the Bible is always put on trial, and that's not fair. So, for example, in the nineteenth century, uh, the middle by, by the middle of the nineteenth century, biblical scholars thought that the Hittites didn't exist. 
because there's no extra biblical confirmation of the Hittites. Then in 1880, uh, Archibald Henry Sace, S-A-Y-C-E, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, Sace uh, came, discovered clay tablets that described the Hittites, and the whole field of Hittitology emerged from there. Uh, but, you know, you know, so the idea is that many of these extra biblical confirmations could be waiting to be discovered. And, and we do have, the, and what's funny though, is that people will think, oh, we have all this stuff for the New Testament, but not for the old, but you know, you take like the Pilate inscription, the extra biblical archeological confirmation of Pontius Pilate wasn't discovered till like 1962 in Caesarea Maritima. But we've also known for a while that in 1208 BC, the Egyptian King Merneptah erected a stele, S-T-E-L-E, uh, a large granite monolith uh, detailing his conquest. And there's a line in the, in the monolith that says, uh, Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. And the particular sign that is used, man, woman, and three strokes, uh, designates not necessarily a nation, but a people group uh, who are who, an ethnicity who are, who are named after a specific historical individual. That's dated to about 1208 BC, which is either a few centuries or a few decades after the Exodus, depending on how you date the Exodus. So I would, to counter the skeptics, I would say, well, no, we actually have more extra biblical confirmation than you would imagine, but there's still things that are lacking because things disappear in the sands of time that are, they aren't preserved well over thousands of years. But as the data continues, we see the biblical picture of salvation history coming more into focus and being confirmed with these discoveries. I think this is just so fitting because, you know, in the, as I'm listening to you and hearing the development of the 19th century into the 20th century and realizing that the Sitz and Laban was, you know, a, a biblical sense of scripture, really like a historical critical sense of, of scripture, because it places you in the setting. Like that's the whole translation of, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know German at all, but like the whole sense of um, actually developing the setting in which the scriptural accounts are taking place. And you could see how that could really defend the Bible in many different respects. And, you know, I just want to take a moment and express how grateful I am for, for this conversation, because we need to be able to apologetically defend our faith and defend our uh, our scriptures and how much that that means to us. You know, um, I'd like to. I'd also like to take a moment and just express my gratitude to all of our patrons because without you guys, we would not be able to have this content, and we wouldn't be able to have Trent on the show, and we wouldn't be able to do this weekly transmission of the Catholic Talk Show. So, a big shout out to our patrons. Thank you for being defenders of the faith. And if you want to share this content, please do share the good news. Go on social media platforms and share the Catholic Talk Show. We're at Catholic Talk Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And take a moment and subscribe. If you're on YouTube, click the bell so that every time we produce a new show, it will populate in your feed and you won't miss any content or any show. And, you know, I just want to, I just want to ask um, Trent, Developing your apologetical approach, because I've I've turned to Catholic answers so many times, and you're such an awesome resource. Thank They're you. the uh, crutch of, of every two-bit apologist and YouTube video person like us. I mean, you guys really <laughs> <laughs> do a great job for us. We wouldn't if we didn't have our patrons, we wouldn't exist. If we didn't have Catholic answers, we probably wouldn't be worth watching. 
and, and it's true. And, and it's, you know, like it's, it's my first go-to because I'll, I'm always, you know, all the world is so busy. We're always like on the run, 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 run. Who can actually sit down and really study extensively? You know, when, when we're trying to develop the setting of the scriptural context for this, this is why the magisterium is so important. And you're really articulating that so beautifully and, and your ministry specifically with Catholic answers you know, what, what gave rise just as a testimony to your own pursuit of apologetics and, and really doing what you do? Well, I think like uh, many apologists, not all of them, but like many others, uh, being a convert to the faith uh, from essentially, I was non-religious. I believed in a God, but that was it. I didn't believe in divine revelation. I had to answer all these objections for myself. And so mm. after having to answer them for myself before becoming Catholic, uh, I felt called and, and equipped to help other people to answer them as well. So I, I think that's probably a part of it. I, I converted and became Catholic about 20 years ago. And so I read atheist and Protestant literature. And after doing that, I'm, I'm happy to help others to overcome these kinds of difficulties. Mm. Thanks be to God. Now, being that you form, you're you know, essentially a theist before, again, I mentioned that we have a lot of people who are theists who are agnostic or atheists who watch our sure. show. Can you give them a quick pithy recount of why scripture should be believed, trusted, or even considered as something worthwhile? Sure. And I think that this is a point I thought of earlier in our conversation when you're saying that people are flummoxed by scripture, you know, talking snakes, uh, for example. Uh, now that's a description in Genesis in the fall in Genesis chapter three. Uh, and as we show, that may be part of figurative language. Uh, that may not be the literal event that happened. But even if it did, even if that were the literal event that transpired at the fall of man, I don't find, I don't, I'm not surprised by that at, at all. I'm not shaken by that at all, because if there, if there is a God who can create an entire universe from nothing, uh, for, you know, he, he can give animals the ability to talk, he can part the waters of the Red Sea. He can do anything. If he can make everything from nothing, he can do anything. So I'm not phased by the miracles in scripture because I have a theistic worldview. I believe there is a God who exists, who is perfect goodness and being itself. So if we start with natural theology and the, the evidences and arguments for God, I cover a lot of that in my book, Answering Atheism. Then we have a greater framework to say, okay, it's if there is, if God does exist, it's possible God has revealed himself to human beings, when could that have happened? Um, <clears throat> for me, in my conversion, I looked at the stories of Jesus and said, all right, let's say these are human documents. But what we get from them at a minimal level is that there's this guy, Jesus, who was crucified, claimed to be divine and vindicated that claim by rising from the dead. Uh, the, the Christian faith, the genesis of it in a hostile world doesn't make sense unless Jesus really did rise is the best explanation for all the events surrounding the, the disciples' transformation, the empty tomb. And so for me, since Jesus trusted the Old Testament and Jesus walked out of his own tomb, I'm going to go with what he has to say about that. And so that gives me confidence both in the scriptures he trusted and in the church he founded that gives us authoritative teaching on those scriptures. It's an excellent answer. That's an excellent, that's an excellent it's a Catholic answer. answer. It is. It's like a Catholic <laughs> answer. Well, it's, it's important. Notice here, I'm not, I'm not front loading with, well, we've got all this confirmation, corroboration, mm -hmm. evidence, and that all yeah. is important. But to me, it's ancillary to mm -hmm. that. It's the icing on the cake. 
Rather, I have these core elements of of revelation, like Jesus's resurrection, his establishment of the church. That's the core. But then we do have, over time, historical corroboration and confirmation of Scripture. But when critics say, oh, prove it to me, but not in the Bible. Well, you're already assuming the Bible doesn't count as history. Why should I believe that? And they'll say, well, because the Bible has miracles in it. Well, have you ever read Herodotus? Have you ever read Tacitus or Josephus? All ancient historians believe in the miraculous. They believed in that. They had that worldview. Uh, but that but that doesn't mean we throw out everything that they said. We sift through it to find what's more and less accurate. And as someone who's approaching scripture, we do the same to look through to say, all right, what is the author intending? What is the literal sense? What is the spiritual sense? What do we know from ancient history at the time? And we can uh, understand the true meaning of events by diligently studying the text. Yeah, Jesus I like the mention of Herodotus there because Herodotus, I'm reading him right now. Uh, there's so many things that we wouldn't have any idea existed without Herodotus um, until we maybe found something 20 years ago. But people knew about all these historical events for a thousand thousand years, right? Since you read it in the seventh, sixth century BC. Um, But yeah, you're reading that. I mean, they are a product of the time. And sometimes Herodotus is called the father of history. Other times he's called the father of lies because there's so much embellishment in the story. There's so many things that likely didn't happen, but they give context to the story. And Herodotus was not meant to be a history book as a tome. It was performance. It was historical theater. Herodotus was delivering this to the Athenians so that they can hear these stories. And you can tell by the meter that these were meant to be read aloud. And there's stuff put in there for audience engagement that you wouldn't put in a history book. And the Bible has a lot of that too. It's kind of the same tradition of ancient writers where a lot of the stuff was oral tradition right. and then eventually got written down. Well, um, what was, what's interesting? Yeah. Well, what's interesting here is right. Herodotus is a far more entertaining historian to read when you look among ancient Greek historians. Uh, but he also exaggerates things quite a bit. Uh, a much more reliable and not as fun historian to read would be Thucydides. Uh, but even here, Thucydides, uh, when he talks about the manner of recounting history or ancient historiography, it's important to to read because it's different than how we do his, history today. But it was the common way history was done in the time of the Old and the New Testament. So Thucydides, in his histories, he says this about how he would write speeches that people that generals and kings gave. And he said, with reference to the speeches in this history, some were delivered before the war began, others while it was going on. Some I heard myself, others I got from various quarters. It was in all cases difficult to carry them word for word in one's memory. So my habit has been to make the speakers say what was, in my opinion, demanded of them by the various occasions. Of course, adhering as closely as possible to to the general sense of what they really said. Mm-hmm. And so this is important then when we're reading scripture, when we're reading, let's take the gospels, for example, because the gospels, unlike the Old Testament, well, similar to the Old Testament, because we have you know Samuel and Chronicles describing and Kings generally describing the same event from, from different perspectives, but even uh, closer uh, in the gospels and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describing events in, in different ways, sometimes, in interesting variances. So for example, at Jesus's baptism, uh, a classic one I like to give is this, what did the father say at Jesus's baptism? In the gospel of Matthew, the father says to the crowd, this is my beloved son. 
But in Mark and Luke, he says, you are my beloved son. Well, which is it? Well, I would say the father said at Jesus's baptism, Jesus is my beloved son. That is the core of what he said. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are expanding upon that in their secondary details of describing it, that Matthew's focusing on how the proclamation of the father affected the crowd and Mark and Luke focus on how it affected Jesus. So they're describing it in different ways, but they're still describing the same event without contradiction. And I think that comes down to administration of pastoral intent. You know, in what in which way am I proclaiming and and for what purpose am I proclaiming to this community this articulation of truth and and revelation? And something that I circle back to all the time pastorally as I'm celebrating the sacred mysteries firsthand in Persona Christi is if there is no resurrection, this goes back to what you were saying before, Trent, if there is no resurrection, what are we doing here? You know, what is the Eucharist? You know, what, what are we, what are we celebrating? How are we living? What is the orthopraxis of, of what we do day in and day out as Catholics living out this culture? You know, right. and, and it's just all empty without the resurrection. Mm. And even in the sense of, of what we've just celebrated recently at Pentecost, you know, the conclusion of the Easter season, that, that at Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then seeing the influence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the apostolic college, now you're seeing the miraculous manifest right. by their commission and now they are fulfilling that great commission at the Ascension in baptizing and drawing people from all different nations into one. And, and to see that for me is just such a um, – to see that played out right now right? for yeah. me is, is – I'm just a principal witness of it just as, as one who presides over the sacred liturgy because I, I am witnessing the miraculous in, in that moment – and, yeah. and it's just such a powerful experience. I, I know Delacrosse for you too, like you're just so eucharistically in contact and that was really driving your vocational discernment in, um, in toward priesthood initially. Um, yeah. It's just everything. Yeah. I was just thinking like, you know, listening to Trent's uh, conversion and just how God beautifully just speaks to people's hearts and through questioning the Holy spirit worked in these little bite-sized chunks and brought him Slowly there with me, it was, you know, a life of hedonism that eventually I had an encounter with the Eucharistic, the risen Lord, his body, his blood. I literally had no idea what I was looking at and what we were doing. And eventually through the bite-sized chunks of his presence uh, around me, I finally realized that this was me face to face with my maker and that all things were going to be okay and, and that I was going to have a friend until the end. And, and whereas, you know, my whole life was in shambles, I had this great gift before me that, you know, as I began to study and, and learn sort of through a back door here, uh, I, I began to realize that the Holy Spirit that God gave us through these sacraments in the hierarchy of the church, in our church itself, through lay people, that those people were protecting his presence. They were protecting his actions in our world today as a church to make people like me you know, to, to bring Christ to me and allow this encounter and this healing to occur, you know, so you look at it in a, a lot of different angles. I think there's a lot of people who question, uh, and then there's a lot of people who by encounter, uh, whether it's through the Eucharist or, you know, through a person or whatever, 
come to know the Lord that his actions are still, you know, permeating through both, both and, you know, but it you draws know. us into that full stature of Christ. Like That's all right. of us throw these different perspectives. It's like drawing us all together in a beautiful way by the power of the Holy spirit. Yeah. And I think a, a good, a good thing. And Ryan, you know, your, your story there kind of brings it up for me is to look at the differences in at least the synoptic gospels and then the gospel of John. Me and Delacrosse, you know, if you watch this show, you would think that we couldn't be more different as people. We enjoy the same things. We do the same things. We more or less act the same way, but we have maybe different ways of recounting it. If me and Delacrosse go out and party and have a good time, and then we got to tell one of our friends what happened, it's going to yeah. be a different story. <laughs> it's going to be a different. I've been the recipient of that many times, and it is. It's a very different story. The story and the recounting of it's going to be very different. We're going to have different focuses. We're going to have, well, this was kind of my perspective. This is kind of how this thing happened. They're both going to be true. You know, it's both. It's going to be true that we want cow tipping. But why and what happened is going to be completely different, right? It's going to be, and, th and that's the same thing you have with, with, with scripture, you know, you have something like um, the transfiguration. Okay, imagine three different people trying to get that the same, right? And then you and your friends, go. you and your three friends, go out to a baseball game and then go out to eat afterwards. And then try to tell the same story and see how many disparities they are. Now, now if I was taking the same method as I would uh, as a critic of the Bible, I would say, well, looking at your accounts, you guys... That baseball game never happened and you never went out to eat. But that's a very limited view of it because you're just, it's so much of a coming from a point of contention without any kind of openness. It's really, you're starting from a position where you're just trying to find a flaw. But when you look at it, yeah, they went out to eat. They went to a baseball game, but the stories are a little well, different because there's it, different recountings. And it's interesting that on two points here. One, people will give ancient historians far more latitude in being able to do this. When you read about the great fire at Rome that took place in the year 64 uh, AD, AD 64, <clears throat> our multiple sources we have that describe that, like Tacitus or Suetonius or Cassius Dio, they all disagree about where Nero was when the city burned. Mm -hmm. uh, but they all agreed that the city burned. And then the, the debate about whether Nero was involved, uh, they're also agreeing about that. But they can't quite place exactly where Nero was when this is all going down. Yet they all agree on the central uh, elements. One of my favorite examples, though, on the second point, one of my favorite examples in scripture of the human authors describing things in different ways according to their own personal temperaments is how Mark and Luke describe the healing of the woman with a hemorrhage. So if you remember the account of Jesus healing the woman who had had a bleeding hemorrhage for about 12 years, uh, Mark says she had went to many physicians. Mark 5.26 says she spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. That like she even went to the doctors and they made her worse. But in Luke 8.43, it only says that the woman spent all her living on physicians and could not be healed by anyone. So Mark adds the extra dig that the doctors made her worse. Luke just says they weren't able to help her, which may be the case that Luke is trying to give a little credence to his brothers in the medical field because Luke himself, Colossians 4.14 tells us Luke is the beloved physician. And he'd probably tell Mark, cut us a break. It's the first century. We're doing the best that we can. <laughs> and so, uh, but it's, but you see, and we go back to De Verbum, uh, the dogmatic constitution and divine revelation of the second Vatican council. 
says that God chose human authors to be true human authors, that scripture is the word of God, but he allowed the human authors to use their own words, writing down only what he wanted, but still using their human words to describe the story. So, so that's why when you read in scripture, when people read the Bible, they think that God just dictated to the authors, here's what I want you to write, which doesn't make sense because in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, you know, I, I, I baptized uh, Stephanus, but I don't know if I baptized these households. Paul confesses his ignorance about his baptism schedule, which clearly shows the Holy Spirit isn't whispering to him everything to write down. It's tr it, just like how Jesus is truly man and truly divine. The Bible is truly human in its composition, but also truly divine in its inspiration. There you go, Father Rich. You can, use, you can use that excuse now going Dude, forward. Dude, I, now I have a, a biblical source to use. I'm like, I don't remember. Was I supposed to be here? I don't know. Stephanus, something or other. I was busy. Well, one thing I know is that you're supposed to be here. And we are so appreciative to all of our viewers, all of our fans for the Catholic Talk Show. And especially to remember, look, we are all on a journey. You know, Trent's journey that he shared with us has just been so inspirational, like an intellectual conversion that's moved him so deeply and spiritually to be commissioned to the work of a Catholic apologist. You know, check out Catholic Answers. If you haven't, if you haven't, first, I'd be surprised if you've not come across Catholic Answers already. So if you haven't, make sure you check them out. And, you know, it gives me the sense of, you know, what Delacrosse was sharing in, in his journey, very experiential, like with the miraculous, you know, and how that how that convicts you. And and Sheil, you know, you're you're so intellectually gifted, but I wouldn't kind of isolate your your experience, intellectual conversion experience. But you're like a holistic kind of a social, uh, you know, experience of, of journey as well. Um, you know, in, in the sense of the catechism of the Catholic Church. Describing the human person and life, life is in statu vie, in a state of journeying. In von Balthasar's words, it's in a state of, of becoming. You know, and, and what's happening is, is we're encountering and we're emerging and we're coming to greater knowledge. And recently in relationship to Pentecost uh, Sunday, just, just most recently celebrating that uh, beautiful, beautiful solemnity, when the advocate comes, as Jesus says, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he will testify to me. And you also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. I just, I love that scripture and I love that gospel passage because it describes the journey. And we're on this journey together with our partners, with our sponsors, with our patrons, you know, we are on this journey together. So we want to give a big shout out to Halo. Halo is the number one Catholic app in the app store today. So many people are developing and enriching their spiritual life by Bible in the year with Father Mike Schmitz, Lexio Divina, meditations, and Delacrosse. I know you use this daily. Yep. Yep. Yeah, with my kids too. It's just easy to sit down and just get into a quiet place and be led by prayer. I've said it before. It's just, uh, it's life changing when you can just give God just 10 minutes and have somebody who knows how to guide somebody in Lexio Divina, which is a very powerful prayer of the church. Um, uh, it's just a, a, a wonderful way to, you know, 
engage God on a daily basis in a busy life, um, it's, it takes you to a really, really deep root of Christian prayer for you. And, and you can tell the difference, you know, but like you said, they also have, you know, night prayer, they have music and there's different music you can put on during the meditations, but I primarily use it for meditations and discussions about scripture with my kids. Yeah, it's great. There's just so many, so many great movements in the Catholic church online today. Hallow is certainly one example, but if you want culture and to be enriched in the Catholic faith and tradition, Catholic monthly, Catholic dot or Catholic month dot L Y is a great thing to subscribe to because each and every month you're going to receive a box. Now, Sheil, tell them what's in the box. What's in the box? box? What's in the box? Got in that box. (laughs) So Catholic Monthly is a monthly box subscription that gives you Catholic devotionals, gives you Catholic materials so that you can grow in your faith, right? Um, let's be honest, after Vatican II, a lot of the traditions of the faith fell by the wayside, things that have been in place for thousands of years, things that were integral to the life of a Catholic that we no longer get. Catholic Monthly helps you to rediscover your faith in a deep, powerful way that you probably were never taught. You're going to be getting classic books. You'll be getting, um, you know, works by like uh, Anselm or... Uh, Aquinas or whomever, but then you'll also be getting sacramentals like a rosary or a um, a scapular. But then sometimes you get a t-shirt or a work of art to hang on your wall. And all of these things will help you in a monthly way. Each month you get a new one and it gives you a way to rediscover a little bit at a time the deep traditions of the church. So if you go to catholicmonth.ly, you can get 50% off your first monthly box right now. Um, go and sign up. You can cancel anytime. Uh, but it's a really, it's a great thing. Every month it shows up in your door and it gives you new things to explore with the faith that you may never have learned or maybe never developed in your life. Now, I also want to mention about Hollow. If you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Hollow, you can sign up for free and get to, and try that out and make sure that it works for you. Um, I also want to take this opportunity, make sure that you find Trent's podcast, the council of Trent, go and subscribe to that. Right. Um, if you enjoyed what Trent did here today, and I think anyone watching this absolutely did because Trent was awesome. I mean, he's good at what he does and he really, really knows his stuff. Yeah. Go subscribe to the Council of Trent right now. Um, I'll make sure there's a link. So if you go to catholictalkshow.com and are on this episode's page, there'll be a link to Hollow Catholic Monthly. Um, and there'll be a, a link to Catholic Answers, but then also Trent's materials, his books. Um, I know Answering Atheism is an excellent book. Um, you recently came out with another book, Trent, um, I think about a year ago, is Why Catholic, right? Is that the name uh, of it? Yeah. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Why We're Catholic, Our Reasons yeah. for Faith, Hope, and Love. And that is uh, uh, that was probably my... Um, uh, book that's sold the most has done the, the most good. It's helped a lot of people to come back to the faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll, we'll put links to that, but then also the council of Trent, so you could subscribe to that. And I really want to thank you, Trent, for coming on. I mean, I'd love to have you on again. I think you, uh, you classed the joint up and we could use that. From time to time. <laughs> we definitely need that help. And the world, the world is in desperate need for a cultural revolution. 
you know, and by participating in these types of transmissions, by connecting with Catholic Answers, by connecting with Hallow, by connecting with Catholic Monthly, you know, we're participating in that. So share this content, spread the word far and wide, my brothers and sisters, and it is an absolute joy to be with you each and every week. If you are considering to become a financial contributor to the show to ensure that our growth continues, go to patreon.com forward slash Catholic Talk Show. You'll see every way that you could support us. And we've got some cool, cool stuff to send your way as well. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.